Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. This week, President Trump appointed Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster as his new national security advisor. McMaster comes highly regarded from both sides of the aisle, having rose to prominence two decades ago with his book Dereliction of Duty, a sharp critique of the political and military decisions involved in the Vietnam War. Most recently, he held the titles of Director of the Army Capabilities Integration Center and the Deputy Commanding General of Futures at the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command. Just this May, he spoke at CSIS in that capacity. And so for this week's show, I thought it would be useful to hear from the man who now holds the President's ear on what he sees as the main threats facing the United States. Thank you, Kathleen. What a privilege it is to be here with you and to be at CSIS in particular, uh, an institution that, that does so much to lend clarity to our thinking about issues involving national defense. And, and uh, I want to thank you. I want to thank John Hamry, Tony Cordesman, uh, Mark Kansian, uh, who's done some great, some great work recently uh, on the Army and Army capacity and so forth. So it's great. It's really great to be with you. And, and what I'd really like to talk to you about is, is really, I think, a period that we're in right now of a period of increasing risk, increasing risk to national and international security. Uh, for a number of, of, of reasons that are, are re, I think, reinforcing in connection with the elevated level uh, of risks to our nation, to our allies, and really all of humanity. And those involve growing threats to national and international security, threats that are taking shape in the form of state and non-state actors both. But it also has a lot to do with reductions in capacity. Capacity not just in our armed forces, but reductions in capacity of our key allies' armed forces as well. And then, and then also reductions in modernization. Reductions in modernization for our Army in particular. In, in a period of time when we have seen potential adversaries investing a great deal in modernization of really all of their services, but of land forces in, in particular. And so the situation, I believe, globally, the situation in, in connection with U.S. vital interests and security, uh, I think has, has changed and is changing really in a direction that's going to raise additional challenges to the U.S. and U.S. national security. So I thought I'd talk about that as a way to kind of frame how our Army is doing the best it can to prepare for future armed conflict, to prepare to secure our nation operating as part of joint and, and, and multinational and interorganizational efforts. So the world is different, of course. The world is always changing. As General Neller said yesterday at CFR, if any of you watched that at Commandant of the Marine Corps, summing it up as only maybe a Marine can, he said, the world gets a vote. And I think what we're seeing is a shift in, in geopolitics and competitions in a way that, that poses great dangers and I think has elevated the risk of a major international military crisis to maybe the highest level in the last 70 years. And of course, a number of scholars are writing about this, Jakob Griegel and Wes Mitchell in particular in their great recent book on Quiet Frontier, where they describe revisionist powers, Russia and China in particular on the Eurasian landmass, that are surrounded by weak states which are now become, becoming battlegrounds, areas of competition at the far reaches of, of American power. They also describe Iran as a revisionist uh, power and, and highlight the threat of North Korea in terms of state-based threats to national and international security. So I think their work is important, but I also think Margaret McMillan's great essay, written in 2014, making the analogy between 2014 and 1914 and, and really making the point that geopolitics is back. Maybe our, what we might call our holiday from history in the, in the post-Cold War period uh, is over. And so, so I recommend her essay as well called The Rhyme of History, which is on the Brookings 
on the Brookings website. But again, as General Neller said yesterday, the world does get a vote. And I think what might have punctuated the end of the, the post-Cold War period is Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine uh, and, and, uh, and annexation of, of Crimea. Now, this was, this was not really a new development in terms of Russia, Russian aggression. I think you can go back to the denial of service attacks on the Baltic states in 2007, certainly the invasion of Georgia in 2008. And as Zachary Shore has points out in a, in a great book called A Sense of the Enemy, that what's important about your adversaries is not to understand a pattern of behavior. What's important is to try to anticipate a pattern break and to take action to address those threats in a timely manner. So even though it may have been apparent, at least since 2008, that Russia was changing its geostrategic behavior and engaged in what Griegel and Mitchell call probing, probing at the far reaches of American power, our strategic response was to accelerate our withdrawal of forces and army forces in particular from Europe. And that's what we're seeing now as we've, wake, we've awakened to obviously this threat from Russia who was waging limited war for limited objectives, annexing Crimea, invading, uh, invading, uh, invading Ukraine at zero cost, consolidating gains over that territory and portraying the reaction by us and allies and partners as escalatory. That what is required to deter a strong nation that is waging limited war for limited objectives on battlegrounds involving weaker states, or what Thomas McKinder called uh, at, the, at the end of the 18th, early 19th century, the shatter zones on the Eurasian landmass, what is required is, is forward deterrence, to be able to ratchet up the cost at the frontier, and to take an approach to deterrence that is consistent with deterrence by denial, convincing your enemy that your enemy is unable to accomplish his objectives at a reasonable cost, rather than sort of an offshore balancing approach and the threat of punitive action at long distance later, uh, which we know obviously from e recent experience confirms that th that is inadequate. Of course, this is a sophisticated strategy, what Russia is employing, and we're doing a study of this now with, with a number of partners. It com combines really conventional forces as cover for unconventional action, but a, very, a much more sophisticated campaign involving the use of criminality and organized crime and really operating effectively on this battleground of perception and information. And in particular, part of a broader effort to sow doubt and conspiracy theories across our alliance. And, and this, this effort, I, I believe, is aimed really not at defensive objectives, but at offensive objectives to collapse the post-World War II, certainly the post-Cold War, security, economic, and political order in Europe and replace that order with something that is more sympathetic uh, to Russian interests. So other threats that are evidencing this, this behavior of probing, challenging U.S. interests at the far reaches of, of American power, I think that you could also look at, at China as exhibiting an analogous strategic behavior in also an effort to expand territory and expand their influence at the expense of U.S. interests and the security of, of our partners in the region. I think what you, you could characterize what's going on in the South China Sea, for example, as territorial expansion. And in this case, really the development of land mass to project power outward from land into the maritime and, and aerospace domains, to restrict freedom of movement and action in those domains, and to, and to secure Chinese influence uh, across, across those domains. This is militarily analogous to what Russia has done in Ukraine, for example, where Russia has established air supremacy 
over Ukraine from the ground. And this is really what, what China is endeavoring to do from an operational perspective uh, as well. And again, a sophisticated strategy involving cyber attacks, uh, information warfare, a sophisticated economic uh, effort uh, to, to undermine the post-World War II economic order uh, in, in the region. And uh, of course, what this does is it, it highlights, I think, really the sophistication and the broad range of activities associated you know, with this activity of probing. And of course, China has engaged in the largest theft of, of, of intellectual property in history. And so we ought to realize maybe from this experience that it is our technological advantage, discrete technological advantages over our enemy are the aspect of our differential advantage in defense that is most transferable to our enemies. So we ought, to, we ought to continue to pursue those advantages technologically, but we have to recognize that we have to seek strengths, relative advantages elsewhere. And I would think, I think mainly through joint synergy and mainly through the combination of well-trained soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, and cohesive well-trained teams and adaptive leaders with technology. It is our people and our technology that provides us, the U.S. military, with our differential advantage. And of course, I think it is, it is difficult to overstate the threat uh, from, from North Korea. Of course, I mentioned the world is changing. As General Neller said, the world gets a vote. And, and on the Korean Peninsula, if, when you look back to the Quadrennial Defense Review and the, and the Strategic Choice Management Review, North Korea was not obviously by that time a nuclear power, uh, had not devel developed and proliferated nuclear weapons to the extent it has today, and did not combine that with its, its efforts to develop missile technology uh, and to improve delivery systems for weapons of mass destruction. What makes, of course, North Korea particularly scary is it is simultaneously a conventional, although an, an aged military, but a very capable military and numerous military. Now it may be a nuclear power, but it's also, we could say, maybe a failing state at the same time, which makes this a particularly precarious and dangerous, and dangerous situation. So it, I think what the Korean Peninsula ought to be instructive for us as well, for the Army and for the Joint Force, is what the, what the experience in, in Korea tells us, is, is, it tells us about the importance of consolidation. I mean, think about really our sustained effort there with international partners and mainly our South Korean allies since 1953. Think about what the picture looked like for South Korea in 1953. It looked pretty bleak. And so this shows, I think, the, how important it is to have sustained efforts over time, and how important it is for the Joint Force, and the U.S. Army in particular, to view consolidation of military gains politically, by developing partner capabilities, sustained efforts over time, economically, reform efforts that, that really didn't kick in in South Korea until the 1980s. That sustained effort. There are no short-term solutions to long-term problems, basically. And the Army plays a very important role in setting conditions and, and facilitating those long-term security solutions. Other threats, of course, include Iran, which I think we could say confidently has been fighting a proxy war against us since 1979. And I think what we see in the greater Middle East is tremendous humanitarian catastrophe. I believe the Iranians view this as in their interests. And essentially what we see, I think what we can see Iran doing is applying the Hezbollah model broadly to the region, a model in which they have weak governments in power that are reliant on Iran for support while they create militias and other groups outside of that government's control that can be turned against that government if that government takes action against Iranian interests. You see this, I think, to a certain extent in Iraq, where you have, obviously, 
you know, uh, Hadar al-Abadi, a, tr a tremendous leader, trying to trying to hold things together. While while this this uh, this protest, I think we ought to know if we pull the curtain back on it. This is not about corruption. Uh, this is about Iranian subversion uh, and and the use of pressure on the government to ensure that that government remains wholly sympathetic to Iranian interests. Uh, and this is an effort, I think, to to actually retard many of the reforms. Uh, that would try to build back into the Iraqi government and security forces a multi-sectarian uh, population that would have improved legitimacy and then would, would lead eventually to the consolidation uh, of security gains as we continue the campaign against ISIL. And so ISIL, this is an unprecedented threat in many ways because now we have a terrorist proto-state in the greater Middle East. It's a problem that we know can't be contained, right? Half the Syrian population is dead, wounded, or displaced. That has affected not only countries in the region, and is not only a humanitarian catastrophe, but also it is destabilizing Europe in some ways. And there are connections, obviously, between many of these security threats. We have Russia, for example, who is funding, we know, some of the right-wing parties in Europe, while helping and taking action in this axis of, of the Assad regime, the Iranians, and Russia, that exacerbates the migration crisis. And so ISIL is a problem because of the difficulty of it being contained for that reason, and of course, the terrorist threat to, to Europe, to the Middle East, to, and to our own nation. But ISIL is, is a threat that can't be contained because it's already a multi-generational security problem. There is a cycle going on where groups like ISIL, who use this irreligious ideology, you know, this, this perverted interpretation of religion to justify violence, they, they depend on ignorance and, and the ability to recruit vulnerable segments of populations to foment hatred and then to use that hatred to justify violence against innocents. And now how many children are being educated from among the Syrian and Iraqi populations? Is there a problem of that ignorance growing and, and that hatred growing as, as groups, sectarian groups and ethnic groups fall in on themselves and no longer have the confidence that they can live together, that they can advance their interests and lay their fears through the exercise of politics rather than through violence. And so if the Afghan alumni were a problem that resulted in the mass murder of over 3,000 Americans on September 11, 2001, the Iraq and Syria alumni is a problem that is going to be orders of magnitude greater. It is already a multi-generational security problem. And so what do all these conflicts have in common? Is they're about the control of territory, people, and resources. That has important implications for army capability, but for land force capacity. And for land force, I mean army, marine corps, and special operations forces. So what are the implications of these threats from a, from a defense perspective broadly? First of all, allies are pretty darn important, right? especially at these far reaches of American power, especially when hoping to deter these revisionist powers. And so, so really what we want to do is prevent conflict, and our allies are, are essential to doing that. The second implication is that American military power is joint power. There is no single service or standoff or offshore balancing solution to these complex political and human problems. And so what we need is that synergy between the joint force, where our forces have the, the capability and the capacity to deter conflict, and if that fails, 
to resolve conflict in our interest, to protect our security and our vital interest. And that may entail imposing outcomes without the cooperation of the enemy. And that's, that, that has significant implications for the Army in particular. On the bottom left, that's to, to really emphasize the importance of deterrence. Deterrence by denial and deterrence at the frontier to ratchet up the cost uh, to, to potential adversaries at, at the frontier, rather than, than deterrence by the threat of punitive action later. And finally, in the bottom right, I didn't even talk about Afghanistan, a war that's ongoing. A war that, again, teaches us that the consolidation of gains is an integral part of war and armed conflict. And if we neglect that, if we, do, if we think that that's optional, we will not get to sustainable outcomes consistent with the vital interest that brought us into the conflict to begin with. And so these are four, I think, important implications for defense strategy. And, uh, and we could talk more about Afghanistan and the consolidation of gains if you'd like. So what is our army doing about this? Well, we recognize, right, in our democracy, you get the army that the American people are willing to pay for. And those of us in uniform, it's our responsibility to do the best we can with the resources we have and to ensure that we make the maximum contribution to our security and to our joint force. So this is just to illustrate that we are thinking about the operational environment. We are looking at these harbingers of future conflict by making a grounded projection into the future and identifying design characteristics for the future army. This is a massive effort that involves four fundamental activities. Think, to think clearly about the problem of future armed conflict, to lay a strong conceptual foundation for army modernization. Second, to learn, to learn in a focused, sustained, and collaborative manner about the conflicts that I just summarized here today, but also learn through our experimentation, our war game, our capstone learning event, which was our army warfighting assessment at Fort Bliss, the, the network integration um, evaluation that is going on now, uh, right now this week at Fort Bliss, uh, where I'm headed later today. And we're learning in a different way. We're learning through warfighting challenges, which are 21st order questions, the answers to which will, will improve current and future force combat effectiveness. We have to analyze what we're learning because we have to prioritize ruthlessly. We have to prioritize ruthlessly because of severe reductions in modernization, even as the Army is getting smaller. And the great CSIS report pointed out that the percentage of reduction in Army modernization is greater than at any time that we've applied a so-called peace dividend at the end of Vietnam War, for example, at the end of the Cold War. But it's exacerbated by the fact that in those other periods, the Army had recently been modernized with new equipment, new aircraft. That's not the case this time. We've improved a lot of our equipment. We've developed equipment specifically for Iraq and Afghanistan and sustained counterinsurgency efforts and campaigns there. But we have not modernized our combat vehicles, our aircraft, our weapon systems. And so, so we have to analyze to ruthlessly prioritize with the assets we have. And then finally, we have to implement. And this has a lot to do, obviously, with requirements and acquisition reform, some of the key priorities of General Milley, our, our chief of staff. So we need your help. We need your help in, in ensuring that our army is prepared to, to defend our nation as part of the joint force alongside multinational partners. And, and, uh, and you can help by contributing to the warfighting challenges, but you can help by doing what you're doing here because you're concerned American citizens who, are, who, who care about national defense. And as our, our military gets smaller, the greatest danger maybe to national security is if we become disconnected from those in whose name we fight and serve. 
And so if, if our citizens don't understand the requirements for defense, don't advocate for those requirements, it's unlikely that those requirements will be funded, and it's likely that the, that the risk to national security will rise even, even to a higher level. So thank you so much. I look forward to engaging in a discussion with you and hearing what's on your mind and what advice you have for me. Thank you. And that was Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, the president's new national security advisor. If you want to continue following that event, you can find it all on CSIS.org. Again, please find me on Twitter or at cquinn at csis.org if you have any feedback for the show or have anything you'd like me to cover. As always, thanks for listening.